Well, good morning. Thank you, worship team, for focusing on our Lord. Songs that draw our minds and hearts towards Him. Thank you for those songs. Thank you, Steve, for the chance to speak. Again, my name is Jeff. I serve as an elder here, and I have the privilege of teaching here at ETC during the week. There are two responses to money that we will see today from the words of Jesus. One response is that we seek for it. We pursue it excessively. The other response is that we worry about it. We stress about money. The first will be more of our focus today, and the second will be for next week. But nonetheless, again, we see Jesus talking about two responses to money. Money is a good tool, but it's a bad master. It's a good tool, but a bad master. Sometimes when we come to church, the topic of the sermon may or may not interest us, and we may have lots of distractions, as Pastor Steve mentioned, and sometimes it's hard to pay attention, but today's topic is something that we all think about daily. We think about money. Sometimes we stress about it. Sometimes maybe we pursue it more than we should. With that introduction, I will ask you to stand, please, and we will read together Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. I will read it, and you can listen as I read. It should be on the screen behind me as well, hopefully in your hands. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Do not... Store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot... Serve both God and money. This is the Word of God for the people of God, and all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. As an introduction to our passage, I'd like to suggest four contexts as a way to orient ourselves before we look specifically at these verses. I'm going to talk about four different contexts. First, the literary context. What is Matthew doing? What does Matthew write about in his book? One theme of Matthew is the authority of Jesus. As Pastor Michael and Pastor Steve has mentioned, during the series we've seen that Matthew is talking about the coming of the king. Jesus is the king. He has authority. In the book of Matthew, we see that in many ways. Matthew 1.1, Jesus Christ, son of David. And Christ, of course, meaning anointed one. He's the anointed one. It's the king. Son of David would be reflective of the king. 
When we get to the Sermon on the Mount, we see his authority in that Matthew summarizes the end of the Sermon on the Mount with the words that Jesus spoke with authority, not like the scribes. He spoke with authority and they were amazed. And then Matthew launches into stories in Matthew 8 and 9 about the authority of Jesus that is reflected in his miracles. He has authority, authority over five things in Matthew 8 and 9. And Matthew groups these stories because it's around his theme of authority. At least that seems to be that way. Other gospels have these stories in other places. I haven't even mentioned what these stories are. Again, over five things. He has authority over death because he raises the dead. He has authority over sickness because he heals the sickness. Authority over demons because he casts out demons. Authority over sin because he can forgive sin. And then authority over nature because he can still the, the sea. Jesus has authority. And Matthew's trying to say, Jesus, our king, has authority. Then, of course, Matthew 10, a shocking event where Jesus hands his authority over to his, to his apostles. Matthew, though, returns to authority. Matthew 12, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He is greater than Solomon, greater than the temple, greater than Jonah. Later on, Matthew 25, you know the famous story, the Son of Man will come in his glory, will sit on his throne of glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the goats from the sheep. He is the authority. And then, of course, the famous great commission at the end of Matthew, Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus, our King, has authority, and we will listen to his words today. Every gospel writer has different themes that they like to emphasize. Mark liked to emphasize Jesus as a man of action. Very little teaching in the book of Mark. Luke liked to talk about the dispossessed or those that suffered persecution or discrimination, like the Samaritans. John focused on Jesus as the I am, for example. I am the bread of life. Matthew, though, again, the authority of Jesus. Another aspect of this literary context, what we study today follows from what we studied last week. If you recall, we saw prayer and fasting last week. And what Pastor Steve was calling us to is an orientation to God through prayer and fasting. Today we have a horizontal view, an orientation towards God, but with money, putting God first. So that's our first context. The second context, the reality of the universe. Sometimes it's a good reminder. Where are we and what is the reality of this universe? Well, number one, God is sovereign and Lord of all. We just sang praise to the Father, praise to the Son, praise to the Spirit. He is sovereign and He has spoken. He has spoken in His Word. He's the Savior acting in love through the Lord Jesus Christ to save the rebellious from our sins and to adopt us as his children. He is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so the proper and only response would be obedience and trust and worship and reverence. And specifically in our area of money today, we will have a different orientation given this reality of the universe. Third context, the local church context. 
What are we doing here? Is this just a habit? Do we just show up because that's what we do on a Sunday morning? We are gathered together as, as the body of Christ to hear the Word of God proclaimed over our lives. And it's a physical representation that the congregation is silent, generally, to humbly receive God's Word. That's why we're here. And of course, the pastor during the week has been humbled by the Word of God as he prepares. So we're all humbled by the Word of God, but we are gathered to listen to God's Word. This is a very important time in our spiritual lives. Other times are important, of course, when we talk with our families around the supper table, when we travel, we talk about the Word of God, when we read it on our own. But Sunday mornings, as we gather together, are crucial. Pastors from the past talk about this time of preaching as actually the Word of God. Now, that might be a bit of an exaggeration, but they are basing it on the Word of God, on the Bible. Hebrews 13, 7, you can look at it later. It says, remember your leaders who spoke the Word of God to you. Leaders who are speaking the Word of God. So this preaching, whether it's an actual Word of God or not, is crucial for the life of the church. Some churches in the past also conveyed this idea with the architecture. Sometimes architecture and church taught theological convictions. For example, many churches built three levels at the, at the front of the church. The first level would be for the person giving announcements. The second level would be for the person either leading worship or reading the passage for the day. And only the pastor would ascend to the top level when he preached the Word of God. A physical representation of the importance of preaching. Not only that, some pulpits had windows behind them. That would drive me crazy because my eyes are sensitive to light, but... They would have windows behind the pulpit as a physical representation of the illumination of God's Word going forth to the people of God. Another example of what they did, and there should be a picture behind me of a pulpit. Many pulpits had a candle. There would be a type of shelf, a candle, and an hourglass placed close to the actual pulpit. No, that's not what you're thinking. It's not so the pastor will know, oh, the candle is burnt out. I better finish here. No, both of these were representations that the candle will run out. The sands of the hourglass will fall to the bottom. Likewise, life is short. Our lives are a mist. We are here today, gone tomorrow. So this time is really crucial to listen to the Word of God. But it was also a reminder to the pastor to see the candle and the hourglass to realize he better be preaching the Word of God. He better not just be trying to entertain, speaking fluff, as we say colloquially. This is a crucial time for the body of Christ. We can be thankful as a church that we have a pastor, Pastor Steve, who takes seriously this time. I encourage you in the months and the years that follow to enter this building realizing that he takes it serious, so do we need to also. A good quote 
from a man named Jonathan Lehman. The ministry of the word begins in the pulpit. But then it must continue through the life of the church as God's word becomes absolutely central in the lives of members and bounces back and forth to one another. The word reverberates or bounces around as in a cannon. The word of God being central in our lives, starting here, but then being fleshed out in the rest of the week. So that's our third context. Fourth context before we get back to our passage, the specific context of Ethiopia. Now, I have an iPad here. That's how I read my Bible. But um, my students here at ETC tell me that they've heard more than once speakers in this country that will raise the Bible in the right hand and will raise their left hand like this and say, which one do you want to hear this morning? Do you want this black book or do you want to hear directly from the heavens? And there's lots of things to respond to that. It's not only, of course, in Ethiopia that you see that, uh, but the way they talk, it is becoming frequent. What do we need as the people of God? We need the Word of God. In church history, we do see the visions and the, and the, the dreams and the special revelation coming in different places, especially in places without the Word of God. But when the Word comes, then what do you see? proclamation of sound doctrine and the need to study Scripture. That was the pattern, of course, in the first centuries. What does Ethiopia need now after decades of revival? The Word of God. Amen? We need study of the Word of God. And there should be a picture of, of a couple books behind me of incredible books that talk about the revival here in Ethiopia. If you have not read these books, you can get them on Kindle. They're fairly cheap. I would highly encourage you to read these books. They have such stories that are so incredible, you will, well, at least I do, get a little skeptical. Really? It, those miracles really happen? But they did. God did an incredible thing in this country the last 100 years. Miracles, visions, dreams, now it's time for God's Word. Now it's time to study, all of us, God's Word. And I would ask that you pray for the students here at ETC, the future leaders of Ethiopia. Pray for the students at other Baba colleges from other denominations. The Word of God here in Ethiopia needs to continue to take Root. So, those are our four contexts, this literary context, reality of the universe, uh, local church context, and then finally this context of Ethiopia. And with that introduction, with that way of orienting ourselves, let's go back to the biblical text. Matthew 6. Jesus will give us three different sayings, three different groups of sayings, all centered around either pursuing wealth or pursuing God. We see three sets of twos, and it's easy to remember. Jesus, as a master teacher, would give verbal phrases to hang a mind on so that the mind could remember. He talks about two treasures, two eyes, and two masters. Three sets of twos. Verse 19 again, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. In other words, 
according to your outline in your bulletin, it says, do not at any time store up. That's the sense of the original. It's an ongoing process. We don't store up, and we continue not storing up. Oftentimes in the ancient world, people would have a strong box made of wood that they would dig a hole in their house, and they would bury the strong box there to try to protect their treasures. They would know the danger of thieves breaking in. They would also know the danger of moths that would often eat through clothing because clothing was an important aspect of their lives. Clothing was actually equated with wealth for a lot of people in the ancient world. The poor even handed down garments or clothes as an inheritance. I highly doubt my three sons uh, have any desire to inherit any of my clothes, but that was done for many years. Clothes were important. Apparel was important. People would treasure their clothes. And Jesus is saying moths can destroy. And this is a real strong word for destroy. Your clothes will be destroyed. Now, this next word, rust or vermin, is debated. It's a difficult word. We're not sure how to translate it. Literally, it's eating or consuming. So, in the context, since it has moth, maybe it still has to do with clothing that another insect is eating. Others think it deals with corrosion, so the idea of rust or with metal. And, of course, precious metal has always been a treasure for some. So, maybe Jesus is talking about apparel and clothing and precious metal that could be corroded. And it's also possible that James mentions something similar. James 5.3 should be on the screen behind me. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. A brutal verse. James, often alluding to the teachings of Jesus, very rarely quoting him, but James seems so saturated with the teachings of Jesus that anything he says sounds like Jesus. Great example for us all. Now, is it sinful to be wealthy? Is it sinful to have money? What does Scripture say? 1 Timothy 6, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not money itself. It's the love of money. It's when we pursue it excessively, when we love it. The point is, material possessions, they look substantial. They look like they will last, but they will be destroyed, and they are subject to decay. Thieves, again, can break in and steal, and we probably all have lost things, things from theft, and we know what a gut-wrenching experience it is. Do not store up treasures on the earth. Do not at any time store up these treasures. Verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. Treasures in heaven are exempt from decay forever. They will never decay. They will never be destroyed. Some may ask, well, what exactly is a treasure from heaven? Obviously, Jesus is speaking metaphorically. This is a figure of speech to cause us to think and to ponder and to dialogue with others. What's a treasure in heaven? It's not a literal 
treasure. What is it? Well, there's lots of debate, though there's some good words from different authors, some saying it's simply doing righteous deeds. It's suffering for Christ, even forgiving one another. All of these in Scripture have the promise of reward. Also, simply being kind is a way to store up treasure in heaven. I encourage you all to consider this class on hospitality. How can we learn to be more kind and hospitable? Jesus' contemporaries also talked about obedience on earth as depositing treasure in heaven. Now, these are not scriptural books, but they are ancient Jewish books that the Jews would be familiar with, especially Jesus. So obedience on earth would be a treasure in heaven. And simply being generous. Getting a treasure in heaven is being generous. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Michael talked about uh, the many on the street that are asking for money. It's in a difficult situation for all of us. How do we help? Uh, he gave the suggestion that maybe giving some food, though others will say that that often causes people to fight, and the older kids will fight the younger kids and take the food away. One of the elders here, Trent Post, had a good suggestion, at least I thought it was good, maybe going with a friend or two to these kids, taking them to a cafe and buying them something, asking their name, getting to know them. That's not real practical all the time, but the very least we could do if we're in our cars is to look them in the eye, to ask their name, ask how they're doing, ask where they are from, and especially to a young child, say, you are not just a street kid. You have dignity. You have worth. You are made in the image of God, showing that they are not forgotten, being generous at least with our time and with our smiles. We can all do that to some of those in need, being generous. Now, we know that wealth and money does cause anxiety, uh, many authors throughout history have talked of the spiritual dangers of wealth. Jesus is included there, storing treasures in heaven. Now, also a couple weeks ago, I thought it was hilarious. You remember when Pastor Michael talked about people who give the offering, but some of the bills are wadded up. I thought it was a great illustration of sometimes it seems like we just hold on to money so tight, and when, when we deposit it in the offering, it appears like this. May we all be generous. Amen? Now, a couple of parentheses, a couple of parenthetical thoughts uh, before we continue. How about possessions and property in general? Is it okay to own a house? What does Scripture say? Well, we see lots of help. One, there is an individual right to own private property. There's even a command for believers to create wealth to promote the kingdom of God. Deuteronomy 8, it's very interesting. It is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Other examples from Scripture. Zacchaeus, for example, Luke 19. He didn't give away all his possessions. He gave away half, and he was still honored by our Lord. I really like the story of Mary, the mother of John Mark. Hopefully you know that story. Acts chapter 12, the early church was meeting together to pray for Peter, who was in jail. 
Well, if you know the context of Acts, you know that in Acts 11, there was this severe famine in Judea, in Jerusalem. So somebody could say, Mary, you got a big house. You should sell it so that we can help all the poor who are suffering through this famine. Well, Mary didn't because she used her house as a ministry to allow the people of God to pray for Peter, someone using their wealth, their possessions, to promote God's kingdom. Bartimaeus selling just one field and giving it elsewhere. Again, as we continue this parenthesis about property and possessions, we are to provide for our relatives. Obviously, we need wealth to do that. Proverbs 13 even says, A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. Wealth itself is not the problem. Being greedy is, as we will see in a minute, with this bad eye. One author says, When God bestows the world's riches on any person, He is giving such people a ministry of helps. Love that quote. If you have been blessed with wealth, guess what? You've just been chosen. You've just been elected. You are to help others with your money. Yes, it's okay to own property, but we also have to remember that Jesus did live simply. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Second parenthetical thought. Some people may hear the phrase, treasure in heaven, so they think all they do is just focus on heaven, and they reject what's here. But that is not biblical. 1 Timothy 6, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and so and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves. God gave us this world to enjoy. There's blessings that we all receive. First Timothy 4, it's not on the screen, but it's a great passage also talking about food which God created to be received with thanksgiving. We receive food with thanksgiving. Now, my family and I, we will really miss Ethiopian food. Uh, special food, Tibbs, Shiro, my favorites, that's really good food. We receive the goodness of God when we receive good food. We can be thankful for that. We don't reject everything thinking, I'm only seeking treasure in heaven. No, we receive with thankfulness what our God has given us, what our good God has given us. And then 1 Timothy 4, 4, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Closing those two parenthetical thoughts then, returning to our text, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The place we choose for our treasures will tell us a, a lot about ourselves. The place we choose to store our treasures will tell the world about our hearts. One author says, we must store our wealth above in order that our hearts may be drawn upwards. 
And he goes on to say that the two act and react upon one another. Every time we store something there, our heart will go upwards as well. And of course, the heart would be the center, the personality, the mind, the emotions, the will, a way to say this is who we are. Your treasure and your heart go together. Even the most treasured treasure controls a person's direction. Where we go depends on what we treasure. If we yearn for honor and for prestige, ambition will take complete control of us. If we yearn for money, then greed will take over. If we yearn for pleasure, if pleasure is our treasure, we will become completely self-absorbed and self-indulgent. Verses 19 and 20 have a second-person plural pronoun speaking to you all. But verse 21 changes. It's very interesting. Where your treasure is, this individual focus, this laser focus, where your treasure is, where my treasure is, that's where our hearts are. Two treasures then. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. Now, this is a difficult phrase. Eye as lamp. We usually don't think that the eye projects light. We usually only think the eye receives light. The idea, however, seems to be that the eye illumines the rest of the body. And there are ancient evidence of not only the eye emitting light, but the eye receiving light and then illuminating your entire body. And that seems to be what Jesus is saying, though it is a very difficult phrase. When it says a good eye, it could mean healthy or single-minded or even sincere or, again, generous. Now, we have to be careful. We can't just pick and choose uh, any word we think fits, we have to see what the ancient context is. And it, this word seems to be a single-mindedness, an eye that is singly devoted to be generous, to be good. And, of course, the context is about money. We sometimes read Scripture and we don't realize the context, so we might go to this passage and think, well, it's talking about lust and, and we can't be lustful. Well, that's not the context. It's talking about money. A single-minded eye that is generous, undivided, focused. Verse 23, but if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. I would ask you to look at this phrase and ponder this really devastating phrase. Your whole body is full of darkness. Again, the words sometimes of Scripture are brutal, provocative, and very strong. Imagine entire body, not part of the body, and not just partly of, of darkness, but full of darkness, a whole body full of darkness. When we are greedy, when we are hoarding, Jesus is saying that body is full of darkness. Moral darkness will take over the life. So this evil eye is a greedy eye, a stingy eye that can't see properly. Where will this person be able to go? This person doesn't know because of their greedy 
eye that hoards possessions that decay, but the good, generous eye stores treasures in heaven. This darkness is even worse because for some people, they don't realize how dark they are. For homework, those that will accept it, read John chapter 9, a great chapter on light, on darkness. And it's a beautiful chapter where John changes the whole concept of blindness and darkness. It starts out with physical blindness and physical darkness, but then changes to spiritual blindness and spiritual darkness. If we divide our interests and try to focus on both God and possessions, we will not have a clear vision. Now, notice also that the idea is changed. Verse 23, if then the light within you is darkness. So first we have I as the lamp of the body that seems to be receiving light and taking it down, but then Jesus changes to the light within you and then says the enigmatic, it could be darkness. Challenging words that Jesus gives us that require us to dialogue and to talk amongst ourselves. Two eyes then, after we saw two treasures. And then this last verse. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Other translation, mammon. Mammon would be the Aramaic word, the language that Jesus spoke while he taught for possessions or for wealth. Again, strong, brutal words from Jesus. Hating, despising. Imagine if I would have started the sermon with the question, do any of you hate God? That'd be really strong. That'd be a bit too strong for a sermon opener. But Jesus actually alludes to that possibility. Hating God because you love possessions so much. Again, a provocative, thought-provoking phrase from Jesus. We see here that we have two masters, in a sense, two slave masters. We have God, and then possessions are portrayed as another person or even another God. We have two gods. Which one will we follow? Two slave owners, we could say, those who work for possessions will end up hating God. Those who work for God will end up hating possessions. These two things demand opposite things, of course. We yearn after possessions, we will become more self-centered. We yearn after God, we will be more outwardly focused. Two masters, God and money. Devoted, despised, another way to continue the thought of love and hate. We have two treasures at the start where we lay them up. Then we go to two visions where we fix our eyes. And then we go to two masters. Whom are we going to serve? We are to be wholehearted in our generosity, in our walking, just like light and darkness. It's not possible to be partly light. It's either fully light or fully dark. 
One author talks of the materialism that tethers our hearts to the earth. There is a yearning for possessions that tie our hearts to this earth. May we seek treasures in heaven. Now, a parallel with last week's sermon, if you recall Pastor Steve talking about prayer and fasting and how when we fast, we gain more of Jesus. The reward is more of God. In the same way this morning, we are to seek God. He is the greatest reward. Another author quotes, It is arguable. The materialism is the single biggest competitor with authentic Christianity for the hearts and souls of millions in our world today, including many in the visible church. Do you know, by the year 2050, experts tell us that 40% of all Christians will live in Africa south of the Sahara Desert. Every four out of ten Christians on this earth will be in this general area, Africa south of the Sahara. There has been a revival here. And we can praise God for that. And what this continent needs, like every continent needs, is more generosity and more of the Word of God. We have to fight this tendency towards materialism. Now, I started this talk with saying that there are two ways that we respond to money. One is we seek it. The other is we worry about it or we stress about it. So as an introduction to next week... I will read the very next words in Matthew, Matthew 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Do not worry about wealth. We've just been told not to seek it. Pastor Steve next week will remind us how Jesus tells us not to worry about wealth. Money is a good tool. When we are generous, it is a powerful tool for the building of the kingdom of God. It's a bad master, however. There's two treasures. There's two eyes, two masters. In this coming week, let's try to remember what Jesus says. There's two treasures. There's two eyes. There's two masters. I'll close with a story from one of the books that I had up earlier, Warriors of Ethiopia. According to this author, during the dirk, because so many Ethiopians were generous and invited people into their homes to have, co- to have coffee and other food, not only did the church double, but then it doubled again. According to this author, the dirk brought incredible revival here. Why? Because of the generosity of God's people. May we be generous. Amen. Let me pray. Father, you are a good God, and you've given us your word. You have not left us alone. You've given us your spirit to be able to live a holy life and to see what is in your word. Thank you, Lord, that you are the sovereign and Lord of all. Thank you that you have spoken. Thank you that you have been a Savior that through Jesus has rescued us rebellious, self-centered sinners and adopted us as your children. We praise you as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we recognize we are to worship you and in reverence live our lives. Lord, help us to have a good eye 
a generous eye. Help us to store our treasures in heaven. Lord, may you be our king. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.